Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, a recently published book by Sage Publishing. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars and shops, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee is an associate professor of management information systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia, and visiting professor at Duke University's Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome Roche Nihuama, who is a doctor of law and subject matter expert in cyber governance and risk mitigation. She is head of cyber governance for Redshift, one of Europe's fastest growing cybersecurity companies. Roche works with key clients across a wide market spectrum, including governments, legal, finance, and banking, to spread a contemporary understanding of cyber threats, risks, and liabilities across diverse audiences and stakeholders to drive effective change. Roche regularly writes and presents content that is focused on significant cyber threats, the latest trends and risk management, and is known for her straightforward and consistent communication style that keeps the landscape clear and delivers actionable insights for businesses of all sizes. It's truly a pleasure to welcome you, Roche, to our discussion this morning. Our plan is to talk about practicing good and sensible cyber governance. Hmm. So on that note, let's begin by getting your perspective on what does it mean to practice good and sensible cyber governance? Great, Dave, first of all, thanks so much for having me. Right, so I'm gonna dive straight in. Uh, nobody wants to hear this, but there is no one size fits all. Okay, everybody is looking for like, oh, okay, what's the solution? What's the solution? So I'm not going to sit here and say, okay, you need to input widget X, Y, and Z. And this is bleeding edge technology. Because fundamentally, what you want to do as a business is you want to build in defensibility. Okay, because, you know, look, we're, you know, later on, we'll probably discuss breaches and we're all familiar, like, say, for example, with the Sony breach. But, you know, not every business is Sony. You know, if you're a bike franchise and you're selling e-bikes, you have different assets and different concerns and things like that. So there's no one size fits all. But the courts don't expect um, businesses anyway to be able to forecast the next Stuxnet, right? They don't expect them to be able to see around corners. But what the courts will expect is that businesses read the writing on the wall, especially when that writing has been put there by the intelligence community, whether that's the FBI in the United States or the National Cybersecurity Center in the UK. Um, in my view, sensible cybersecurity governance has been broadly overlooked, actually, and firms have concentrated on entirely the wrong thing. That said, uh, at the end of August, I was on a panel with the deputy governors of banks and um, Kieran Martin, the former CEO of the National Cybersecurity Center, opened that presentation and he was then led by uh, Google's head of 
cloud security for the APAC region. And what was really interesting listening to those guys is that you can hear that there's this paradigmatic shift in how we're approaching cybersecurity. A couple of years ago, you went to these things and it was presented as so complex, so difficult, such a dark art that there was a sense of helplessness amongst the audience. And what these guys are doing is they're giving, they're making people hopeful. It's like, okay, right. We're not gonna be able to tackle everything, but you don't need to be able to tackle everything, but you do need to, and this is, comes to your question. You do need to be able to address reasonably identifiable circumstances that could lead to malfunction, capacity overrun, failure, disruption, impairment, misuse, all of those bad things, right? Because if it's reasonably identifiable, that means it's foreseeable. And if it's foreseeable, it's avoidable. And when you come to court, you really want to have nailed down everything that's foreseeable and avoidable. And so that's what I think are the critical elements of good cyber governance. Whatever size your firm is, what's reasonably foreseeable and what's avoidable, address those. Yeah. Great, great. Makes a lot of sense. So, so uh, you know, along those lines, if someone, someone were to ask you that from a legal perspective, what are the key elements of a robust cybersecurity program? Okay. What, what would you say? So I would, look, first of all, stand on the shoulders of giants, right? Um, you, you can't be an expert in everything, but what the courts will look to is like, well, who's your source, right? Who's your primary source? And for this, I would say, like, look to Harvard, for example. Harvard run a risk management in the information age. It's really helpful. And what it does is it says, okay, so your critical elements for a robust cybersecurity program are an effective cybersecurity framework. Now we can, do, I, let me run through these and then I'll run back and deep dive where you want to, okay? So sure, sure. effective cybersecurity framework, number one, balanced distribution of responsibility, holistic approach to cybersecurity, risk assessment processes, and an incident response plan. Now that's what, you know, Harvard with its team of experts having reviewed the data says, you know, this is a good grounding that will give you a sporting chance of being successful in this area. And that, and that, you know, look, this is this is all the courts are going to expect you to do, right? Um, they're they're not going to expect you to look to the outliers, to you know, non-experts who maybe have a different view. You know, what's the what's the big body of experts saying on this? And they're saying these are the things that you need to look at. Makes sense. Uh, mm. In fact, when I was authoring my book, yeah, and I was and I was reviewing breach incidents, yeah. A couple of things came through very clearly, and they were shortcomings in the form of gross negligence, lack of transparency, mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, inadequate preparation, yeah. and poor communication. You know, given your expertise and your familiarity with all these cyber yeah. breach incidents, what should be some takeaways and lessons learned? from these breaches that organizations have experienced. Okay, so actually, so it's interesting that essentially what you've identified is weak governance, right? And, and governance is all about risk management. And you say that this is for like the data breaches. Dave, the truth is, and, and this is, um, this, this, 
this maybe isn't as um I, I don't know it's may it's maybe not as uh, trying to find the word it, this is pretty mundane you know they say the banality of evil mm -hmm. well it's kind mm -hmm. of like the banality of failures whether that's like mm -hmm. you know like a corporate scandal whether it's like if you look to for example any catastrophe that's happened like you know when the space shuttles blew up or you know here we had many years ago we had like um, a helicopter that was refueling that blew up we had a ferry that overturned um, because they left the doors open when you look at big corporate scandals or you know breaches that happen that have like a physical effect or even like you know recently with you know the pulling out of Afghanistan it's never the widget it's never the widget that's the problem it is always weak leadership weak governance lack of accountability lack of responsibility these are the big issues that need to be addressed and it's the same with cybersecurity. so say for example you know you ask like what are the five elements for um, you know, robust cybersecurity, and I said, well, okay, so you need an effective cybersecurity framework. Businesses could get a jump on all of this by, they could look to NIST if they wanted to, you know, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Um, that's broadly used across, across sectors. It was developed to provide, to provide a standardized policy of methodolo uh, method methodologies and, and procedures to give, like, to give businesses the capacity to effectively mitigate cyber risks, right? And that's based on five core functions. And everybody knows this, identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. These are the things that you need. But like, so when you're saying, oh, if you look at the data breaches, if you look at any corporate scandal, they have the same ingredients. So now for cybersecurity, effective cybersecurity framework, I do like NIST, although can I tell you, the CMMC, the cybersecurity maturity model, that the US Department of Defense is now requiring of its suppliers. So the US Department of Defense ran a cyber due diligence exercise, looked at its suppliers and went, you know what? A big problem for us is you guys. So we need you to clean up your act. And then what they did, and, and I haven't seen this with, with, any other, um, with any other supplier mandates, is that they did two things, which I believe are novel. One, they created levels. So there's five different levels. So depending on what your business supplies to the US Department of Defense, it might be that you're level five. So that means you need to be bomb proof, my friend. But you know, if you're going in there and you're watering the plants and all you need to do is do criminal background checks and you know maintain a safe, okay, so you might be level one, right? But so what they've done is they've done five levels. That I think is a very clever move. Number two, because in that way, what they've really done is they've assessed what their assets are, what they're looking to protect. And now they're giving things, okay, different requirements. And it means then that businesses don't have to go to huge expense. So a small mom and pop operation doesn't need to go to the same, um, to the same expense as say, for example, if you're you know, selling technology for, for, for their um, warships or whatever. Okay, great. So that's on one hand. The other thing that I think is really interesting about the CMMC is that it's a maturity model. So if anyone is like commercially cynical and they think, oh, you know what we're going to do as we um, go into the procurement phase with the US Department of Defense is we're going to switch on all of these best practices.
And then if we don't get it, we're going to switch it off. And then when we go back and reapply in another couple of years, we're going to switch it on. No, because that's the beauty of it. It's a maturity model. And why that is important, in my view, and I will stop to take a breath in a second, <laughs> that's important, in my view, is that because what we've seen with cyber attacks, these guys don't rock up on a Friday and deploy their attack on a Monday, right? You know this better than I do. They hang in there, they're digging around for months. And so it's really crucial to a business that not only are their suppliers robust, but that they've been robust for quite some time. And now I'm gonna take a breath. <laughs> Please do, that was very, very useful insight. So, uh, you know, it's a no brainer that organizations should involve the legal function when they're formulating their cybersecurity strategy, the execution of it, the review of it, and so on and so forth. Um, is there any best practice that you see out there in terms of how best to incorporate legal or to embed legal in cyber governance? So not that I've seen. However, I will make the case for uh, lawyers. I don't think that lawyers have been at the table long enough, really. I think that they should have been involved in this conversation. Look, you know, what does law, what do law firms do? They protect their clients, right? So I don't think lawyers have been that involved. They absolutely need to be. If you look at the cyber threat landscape, there's an awful lot of stuff that law firms can do to help businesses manage those risks. So for example, you know, as, as I do, that you know, you've got your traditional um, crimes that now have a place on the internet. They're not true cyber crimes. You don't need a technologist's involvement in that. And really everything that falls into that category, I believe should be um, headed, spearheaded by lawyers and operations. So HR also need to be involved in that. And look, hey, we've seen this with, you know, like um, it was this colonial pipeline, right? Colonial pipeline was possible because of a disgruntled former employee posting a password onto uh, some platform. I can't remember which, but what's important is that, you know, with the proper policies and procedures, operations and the, and the legal team should have had something there to say, you know, we don't care if you're a good lever or a bad lever. Soon as somebody leaves, all of that, there needs to be a process to change that before their last day. And maybe there could even be a case where, you know, this guy's really critical and he's got access to lots of information. He's going, it might even be on the day that people resign. You don't know. And we've seen this playing out here in the UK as well, where we had um, a disgruntled insider involved in one of the largest data breaches. And the question, of course, that you need to ask in that situation is how on earth did this one guy have access to all of this information that he could then download onto a USB stick and take away out of the business? I mean, that's, you know, this is really naughty kind of stuff. So lawyers need to be involved in that. And I would also submit that there's an awful lot of stuff. So you've got your traditional crimes that have found a home on the internet, lawyers and operations, all of the true cyber crimes, that technologists should be leading that conversation. But I think that lawyers still have a place at the table. And then of course you have a section where it's kind of like, you know, people who are uploading comments that, you know, where, where the company may suffer some reputational risk. 
nifty provisions in people's employment contracts that's like you know what we're not going to tolerate that we're all familiar with ndas right non-disclosure agreements but you know you it's not it it's not a confidentiality thing to say kind of rude things about your business so okay you put a provision in the employment contract and you say look you know if we find that you're doing it while you're employed you'll be instantly dismissed and if we find out that you're doing it afterwards, we're going to come after you because that's actionable. And we will seek to recover our costs and for our damages. I guarantee to you, nobody is going to pull that kind of a stunt, right? They just won't. They shouldn't be doing it anyway. So these are, so then it's like, well, what are the lessons from like data breaches and whatnot? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's one of my favorite cases that I use all of the time is MD Anderson. And MD Anderson, what happened was two devices went missing. I think one was lost and one was stolen. But the presumption is if a device is not encrypted, then there's a data breach, right? Um, and it, you know, it gets to court and the presumption is that there's been a data breach. And then the reasoning is really, really, it's really clear and businesses should use it, to be honest with you. And this is like, you know, building in that defense, you know, you know, when they say it's not if, but when you'll have a data breach. Okay. So if it is when, when this does happen, you really want to have a good defense for it. So in MD Anderson, what happened was basically the questions that were asked was, you know, is this problem well known and understood? Well, is data breach well known and understood? Yes, it is. Is the solution well known and understood? Encryption? Yes. Is it proportionate and affordable? So the courts won't expect businesses, say, for example, a business makes a million pounds a year, right? That's their, that's their net profit. There's no court is going to expect a business to put in a solution that costs 900,000. That's disproportionate. It's not affordable. It'll cause the collapse of the business. So no one's going to do that. So is the, is the solution proportionate and affordable? Yes, it is. So problems well known, data breach. Solution, encryption, yes, that's well known. Is it proportionate and affordable? Yes, it is. And did the IT team in fact know that they should have encrypted? And this is really where I think why they ended up with the record fine. So what had happened was that the IT directors had recommended they encrypt devices. And we see this happening a lot, right? So where you have technologists who understand the problem and the solution, recommending that something be put in place to mitigate against this well-known are often overruled in the budget phase. Now, this is kind of where governance is sort of eating itself a little bit. So part of good governance is you have like a four eyes principle. Okay, I need to spend money. And then someone says, but do you really? And that's a good system of checks and balances. But what happens is that the person who's doing the check actually doesn't have the expertise to know that is a real problem and that is a good solution. And then you're in the extraordinary position where the expert, your technical person, gets vetoed by a non-technical, ham-fisted, inexpert, you know? And that's an extraordinary position for a business to be in. But this where you go back to that frame that that um you know these elements of a good 
um, good cybersecurity. If you have a balanced distribution of responsibility and you've thought about all of this, you're going to be able to you're going to be able to bypass that really neatly. But Dave, I mean, so many firms are in this situation. So many. Sure, sure. Yeah, you are. You are so so true. Uh, so correct. Uh, you know, I think uh, you're you're echoing a lot of things which are of great significance. One of the things I'm picking up from your responses is the importance of thorough due diligence. As a non-legal person, I don't have the legal expertise, but I hopefully I have the common sense to suggest or even to draw a conclusion that you know, companies are likely to fare a lot better in the court of law and public opinion if they can present evidence that shows they have made every effort to engage in robust due diligence. Along those lines, and again, consistent with what you've been talking about, it makes total sense to get that legal expertise you know, into the decision-making process on a regular basis because you cannot expect the one person to have the technical expertise, to have the legal expertise. You know, as you said, there has to be a balanced holistic approach where in governance you have people, you know, coming at it from different functions, providing their perspective. And that's how you get to a very robust, defensible cyber strategy. So, so these are all the facts. But then, you know, based on our respective experiences, the, the practicing of these, this due diligence is not so great. And that leads me to, uh, to my next question. How effective are the current laws and regulations to demand top management commitment towards strong due diligence? So this is a really great question. And I'm going to give you a super woolly political answer. And I'm going to say to you that they are both good and not good. Okay, so let me explain where I'm coming from. Directors have a duty to, in the UK, it's to exercise reasonable care, skill and diligence, and that's enshrined in statute. Okay, in the United States, you also have, uh, the directors also have a duty, a fiduciary duty um, of, of care and loyalty to the corporation. And they're expected, you know, to, um, they're expected to be responsible to the corporation for their decisions and they must use that amount of care which an ordinary reasonable prudent individual would use in similar circumstances and this is what's key on the US side they must consider all material information reasonably available in making business decisions now that alone should be enough to require directors of businesses to exercise reasonable care and skill and diligence. I remember I, like at the beginning, I'm like, yeah, there's both enough and not enough. So on the one hand, there is plenty. And that, that means also that there is already plenty for shareholders and investors and, um, you know, I mean, even staff, right, to be getting on with if they wanted to sue for negligence 
or they wanted to sue for remission to take care. You've, you already have enough. On the other hand, it isn't enough. It's not enough. So in the UK, we've got the statutory duty to exercise reasonable care, skill and diligence, but we found that they haven't done that. And actually what the EU has done is that they've looked at, so they've taken the financial sector and they've realized how interconnected it all is. And if you want to know how interconnected it all is, see financial crisis 2008 to 2012, right? Right, if there is a problem with a couple of big firms, there's a contagion effect and it has the potential to be really damaging both at a macro and a micro level. So what the EU has done is that they've introduced the, uh, they're going to be introducing the Digital Operational Resilience Act. Now that will apply to financial entities. That's pretty wide. It's, you know, it's banks, it's, um, you know, if it rate rating agencies, security companies, investment companies, insurance companies, a whole shebang. If it rates, raises, transfers, makes, manages money, it's on the list. And what they've said is even recognizing that directors have this duty to, to, to take reasonable care, they've said, you know what? We're going to spell it out for you guys. So in the Digital Operational Resilience Act, which applies to all of these financial entities, it has said you must, number one, you must address reasonably identifiable circumstances, which is number one. And number two, by the way, board, no, you haven't been terribly technical up until this point, but you're gonna have to get in the game. And so article three requires the board to train themselves up, to understand, to bear the responsibility for any of the problems that arise as a matter, you know, from cyber risks. So that's really, really helpful, I think. And what it does is it just, you know, there should have been enough with what we had but we can see because of Colonial and Sony and Equifax and all of that, that, you know, and this is where I think the lawyers should have got in the game. The lawyers should have explained to businesses, hey, guys, you know where it says exercise reasonable care, skill and diligence? That also means for cyber matters, right? Absolutely. In fact, um, I'm so glad you emphasize the importance of top management getting in the game. That's something that I highlighted in my book on cybersecurity readiness, that without active involvement, without active engagement of top management, you can't really create that high performance information security culture that's so critical for defending uh, organizations from different types of attacks. You know, along those lines, yeah. I think it would, it would make practical sense, mm -hmm. just, like, just like companies have tabletop exercises to assess where they are from a defense standpoint. I would encourage organizations to conduct legal reviews, simulate um, scenarios where they have been victim of a certain type of an attack mm -hmm. and they are having to present their case to the judge and the jury and explaining what all they have done despite that what you know how it happened and you know kind of it's a self-reflection of the actions they've taken and why they feel that they did the very best they could and i believe this kind of a an exercise and it should be periodic but quite frequent so they're always in the know of 
what's what's the gap in our defense that could be exploited in the court of law or that could hurt us in a court of law again i don't mean to sound legalistic really it's in the big scheme of things you want to do the right things for your stakeholders so you're protecting the assets but at the end of the day you have to contend with the lawsuits and all that comes with it uh, Dave, can I just, can I, please, I, please. That, I, so I think that is a really, really smart idea. Start at the end, assume it like, you know, but this is yeah. it, you know, when people say, oh, it's not if, but when, okay, when it's tomorrow, what are we going to say? And what, what are we going to be proud of? And what are we going to like hang our heads in shame and go, why, why didn't we have that? Because a lot of the times, right this stuff is really accessible, this information. Like when you talk about what's a reasonably identifiable circumstance, I would submit that the, if the intelligence community is warning businesses on a loop that the most significant cyber threat to businesses globally is business email compromise, and you haven't implemented global industry standards to protect it, then, I mean, not only do you look, you look like you're, asleep at the wheel right because so i i think that i i really like that idea i think that's i think it's a good way of addressing and also you are kind of preparing your um you're preparing your material in case these things happen be make it part of your cyber incident response plan yeah absolutely you cannot go wrong if you if you over prepare in my humble opinion so you know taking uh, you know proactive guard making sure you're doing all the things checking with the legal experts checking with the legal authorities and and i i have a feeling that if you if you are really committed to do everything the right way you will seek out the expertise you will require uh, all all those who are involved in cyber governance to take note of it you will require everyone gets you know, suitably trained. I'm not expecting them to be legal experts, but you also need to have some knowledge of what the expectations are. So, um, David, do you know, I'm going to say this. I would rather talk to technical people about the law than um, lawyers about technical stuff. It's just an easier conversation in many ways. So, if you are looking to, you know, train up your board, like you said, you know, you don't have to be a legal expert. Look, a lot of people do not end up in jail because they guess what the right thing to do is, right? You know, there is billions of us never go to jail. So it's not knowing what the right thing to do is, isn't always, oh gosh, I'm going to need to pull out a statute book. It's like, well, you know, what's going to play better if this gets out, you know? Just assume that every decision that you make is going to be reviewed by somebody else. And now can you defend it? Can you defend your, you know, your thinking? And, and, and look, if you refer to the FBI's Internet Crime Report and you say, look, right there at the top of page 20, they told me that this was the biggest problem. So I went and fixed it. If the FBI is wrong, the courts are going to only shrug right? So you're still going to be able to limit your damages. You're still going to be able to limit your costs. You're still going to be able to limit the reputational damage. You can go out to the shareholders and you can go, guys, you know what? We looked to the intelligence community. We looked to the people who have access to data that is otherwise unavailable to the private sector. 
They told us this. We relied on it. Turns out they made a mistake. But you're home and dry. And that's what you want. You want your business to be home and dry. Very well said. Very well said. Uh, now, you've been, you've been speaking, um, sharing a lot of great insights for executives. Now, for global organizations, um, which is the case for most these days, in a highly digitized world where they're doing business and they're crossing um, national boundaries. What are some advice that you might have for, for, for these companies in terms of being on the right side of the cybersecurity laws? Okay, so I would say, look, I mentioned these three things. This is a fantastic start. I would say, look to them all, but I mentioned NIST as a cybersecurity framework, CMMC, you know, not only do you need to protect your business and implement and configure all of the protocols that you might need to protect your business, but you need to start to tell your suppliers to do that because we know that the supply chain compromise is a significant problem. Okay, so you have NIST, do the right thing for your own business. CMMC, look to see they've got five different levels. It might be the case that you won't require anything over a level three for all of your suppliers. I don't know. That's down to your business. And that would be a board decision, depending on your appetite for risk and what your assets are and all of that good stuff. And then Dora. Dora is phenomenal. Okay, so... I'm going to get a little bit excited because I told you about two provisions that I think are really interesting, but there is a fantastic provision contained in Dora and it's on managing exit strategies. And so you and I both know that in the past, what's happened is a vendor has gone to a potential client, promised them the earth, said, look, our, you know, our kit can do X, Y, and Z. And then the, you know, they have converted that um, opportunity into a client. Great. A couple of years later, maybe because we've moved on to cloud, maybe because there's more traffic, maybe because the business scaled, for whatever reason, the kit that they have in there is no longer fit for purpose. It's kind of creaking under the weight of the, you know, transactions or the volume of emails or whatever it is, right? Now, what's happened is that oftentimes those vendors behave like squatters. And instead of facilitating new technology to protect their client, they go, mm, you know, this is going to disrupt your business. And suddenly now that that um, power has shifted from the consumer to the vendor, the consumer doesn't, you know, whether it's a bank or whatever, they don't want their business disrupted. They need to have smooth running. So now they're scratching their heads and then the vendor not only because like, oh, well, we could pull it out, but it's going to take us two weeks and we, you know, you'll have business disruption. They then put up the price, right? Now, this is this nifty provision. It requires um, financial entities in Dora. It requires them to have to manage their exit strategy. And so what that means is Every single financial entity must know how it's going to effectively break up with its vendor that's supplying its technology. And that's fantastic. And this is what I see. I see that this is really useful. Businesses should have been, this is where the lawyers come in, Dave. This provision should have been in every single contract. Okay, you can come in, we'll take you for three years. 
But in the event that you have to go, you have to facilitate it so that there's no disruption, right? And so this, and this is why Dora is fantastic. Now, what I think is going to happen is law firms are going to look at that provision and say, well, hang on, if you can do that for a large global bank, you can do it for a large global law firm. And then, of course, the law firms are going to say, and if you can do it for us, you can do it for our clients because they have a duty to take care of those clients. Right. So I see this provision being inserted into not only um, contracts because it's mandated for financial entities, but I think that the legal sector will adopt that provision for themselves. And then they'll say to their clients, you know what, enough of this. Let's make sure that when you get a vendor in, you know how you're going to get out of that situation. And that's going to save businesses time, money, headache, you know. Um, and as we move more and more on towards cloud, I can see this being a really, really useful, uh, useful provision. Yeah, I mean, I think this discussion on vendor relationship management is key, is critical. I had a question relating to that. Uh -huh. So as you said, you know, more and more companies are outsourcing their data centers, are keeping their uh, digital assets in the cloud. Mm. And that comes with a certain contractual agreement where the service provider promises to provide certain types of functionalities, and that's where my question lies is, let's say, you know, we are familiar with the Capital One breach that happened where they had kept their data on Amazon servers and then an Amazon X employee was able to get in and dump the data to a hub. Mm. Unfortunate state of affairs. And I'm sure Amazon had done its due diligence in terms of training Capital One to effectively secure the servers. Uh, from a legal standpoint, do you think that one could work out a more ironclad contractual agreement whereby the vendors have a little more skin in the game, they stay more engaged, they jointly provide oversight on the security arrangements? You know, in other words, don't just rent me the servers with some training and take the approach, now it's yours. I'm no longer responsible if something were to go wrong. Mm. As opposed to that, you know, can there be a little more joint ownership, a joint sense of responsibility because nobody will know how best to secure the Amazon servers than Amazon itself. So, that's kind of from where I'm coming, oh, if that makes any sense. So the, yeah, yeah, I do. But I don't think that we need to rely on provisions in contracts necessarily in order to address this problem. It seems to me that that is a service that Amazon could offer. It's like, look, you know, here's the framework you can have at that if you feel confident that your own team are capable. If not, we offer a service where we're able to get you confidently and, you know, maintain uh, the integrity and access to that for however many months or something. But, you know, I mean, that to me, to me seems like a commercial issue that can be, that could be negotiated, but this is what I think is really interesting about it, Dave. I don't think people are thinking about that. Right. 
they're getting it. And then afterwards, they end up scratching their heads going, oh, hang on, we don't have the in-house expertise. And then maybe Amazon, you know, you know, there's a, I mean, not that Amazon does this, but you know, you know, in accounting, you have the expression stick to the knitting, right? Okay, so it might be the case that Amazon don't want to get into that. Now, what it seems to me what you've done is identify a gap in the market for former Amazon people to set up their consulting and go, hey, if you've got this kit in, right? If you've got this kit in and you want like the super duper deluxe team to make sure that everything is tickety boom peachy, contract with us. And then you've got your specialists and you don't have to pay them the full whack or whatever. But yeah, but but I think it's interesting that we're having these conversations now because a couple of years ago, this these conversations simply wouldn't have happened. This very grounded, practical, sensible due diligence. What do we need to do to protect the firm? There's apart from your excellent book, there is another excellent book for um, anybody who's interested in in governance and it's um, by corporate author Sean Lyons and it is um, on corporate defense the va um, value preservation so we keep we've been talking for you know decades about value generation now we really need to talk about value preservation and elevate it to the strategic level and I think this is the conversation we've had today is on value preservation how are you preserving that value? How are you maintaining your reputation? How are you keeping hold of your assets so that they're not flying all around the internet? You know, how are you keeping the money in your bank that you don't have to pay out on unnecessary lawsuits and damages and whatnot? And I, I think that there's been this paradigmatic shift in that conversation. And I think it's absolutely of the moment. And I, I really welcome this change. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's truly a conversation on value preservation. It's also a conversation on responsible citizenship, responsible governance. And uh, like you said, um, it, it, it doesn't take extra sense to ponder over these things, to be interested in these things, because at the end of the day, something were to go, or go wrong, you will go to the lawyers for help. You might as well come to them early on get their advice, act on them, go back to them, have them review what you're doing. So have this constant interaction with your legal team, keep them involved, keep them engaged. And there is, there's nothing very um, smart about it. It's something very practical. That's just, that's the theme of our discussion today. What does pract uh, you know, practicing good and sensible cyber governance mean? Thank you so much for fabulous insights. So if you had to close out this discussion with a few takeaways, final takeaways, feel free to repeat what you've said because I think you made some very, very important, provided some provided very, very important insights. So repetition is a good thing. Mm -hmm. So what would you, uh, what were some final takeaways okay. for, for the audience? So, uh, I, I'm, okay, so number one, I would say solve the biggest problems first, right? What is the most significant cyber threat? What is the starting point for 90% of cyber targeted cyber attacks, 90% of ransomware, 70% of data breaches? Fix that first, right? If something is a global industry standard solution, 
implement it you know just there's a reason that it's a standard and it's because it's essential right you know nobody in their right mind would drive with no seatbelt on do the basics you've got to do that so address the most significant cyber threat implement your global industry standards assume that you're going to have to defend your uh, decision making so have a very very clear um, understanding of why you're making those decisions rely on your experts you've got in-house expertise you have a lot of latent talent in the business and i see uh, technologists who understand the problem and the solution being overridden because of processes that are not really fit for purpose so i would say you know rely on your experts um and i think that's pretty much and you know consider your source that's another thing right look to the intelligence community they have no skin in the game they have access to information that's otherwise unavailable to the private sector get on that oh and finally if a vendor tells you something double check it that it's it's <laughs> we got a saying it's called double check just make sure that if they're referencing a document that that primary source is credible and trusted. That's all I have to say. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And I know the listeners will find this discussion, especially your perspectives, very, very valuable. Thank you again, Rosh. That's great, Dave. Thanks so much for having me. A special thanks to Dr. Rosh Nihuama for her time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.